0: Is from Acts twenty-one, one through sixteen. And we had, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Nansen of Cyprus, an early disciple whom we should lodge.
1: Morning, all. Thank you, Russ and Kira, for reading, serving double duty today, not only greeting you all on your way in this morning, but also running up here to Get behind the pulpit and read the word of God. So we appreciate that. Thank you very much. I um, heard about a story of a couple of men that were in a sailboat and um these guys were in the midst of a crazy storm, and so the weather's raging around them. They're pulling on ropes and doing all the things that people know how to do with a sailboat, not getting anywhere, wondering if this is their end. And one of them just kind of inadvertently yells out and says, "It's times like this. I wish I had listened to my mother." You have the other guy on the other side of the boat's going, "What? What do you mean? What did she say?" He goes, "I don't know. I wasn't listening." It, That's where the story goes and ends. Enjoy. One of the most common questions that I receive and that those that uh, do ministry for a profession, if you dare to call it that, it's not quite that, but you know what I mean. Uh, One of the most common questions we get, perhaps the most common question you've asked and I've asked along the way is how can I know God's will for me? How can I hear his voice? And if I hear his voice or if he's speaking to me, how can I pay attention to his voice rather than being like those guys on the sailboat and saying, I wish I would listened to my mother. What was she trying to say? I don't know, I wasn't listening. We think that we're missing God's direction for us, his best for us, that he's got one specific thing. And if you don't do it, the rest of your life doesn't count. Man, I remember being a young man and wondering... Who am I supposed to be with? Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go to school? What am I supposed to do for work? And all these kinds of things. And asking the Lord all of these questions as we do at that age and stage of life. It's normal. There's so much ahead of us that we don't know the uncertainty of how it's all going to unfold. So we ask the Lord, show me what I'm supposed to do. And we were so afraid that we would miss his, what we would always call his perfect will. God's perfect will. It's just locked in. And he's got it, and you gotta find it and discover it. It's almost like you have one of those divining rods, you know, those little stick things that they use and go to try to find water and that sort of thing. It's, it's like you gotta, you gotta spell it out, you gotta find it. And if you don't find it, you miss out on everything. So that knowing God becomes our chief, or knowing God's will becomes our chief pursuit, but then if he reveals it, then what? What do I do with that? I hope that what we see from our time in our text this morning is that knowing God's will is easier to discover when obeying it is our primary goal. In the text that we just had read for us, we are going to see that it's dealing with the knowing and obeying of The will of God. But I love the realism of this text because a lot of the things that we see in the book of Acts has a bit of that kind of spookier component. And I don't mean spooky in a negative way, but like if if Paul's handkerchiefs that he was using to wipe the sweat off are being brought from city to city to perform healings and miracles, that's kind of spooky. And so there's some of that in the book of Acts. And then there's some things that I would call a very realistic unfolding of God's plans and purposes amongst his people. And this text, I think, piles on the realism of what you and I experience as we're asking those questions, what does God want me to do? What's my next step? Am I supposed to go here? Am I supposed to go there? It's always, it's never as clean or as easy as I just spent some time in prayer and I gave it one attempt and then he spoke through the clouds and made it absolutely clear what I was supposed to do and then I just went and did it. Our our experience in pursuing and finding the will of God usually bounces us all over the place and we feel like we get mixed messages. What do we do with all of this? Remember that in the context here that our, our scripture is revealing to us is that Paul is on this farewell tour. He's still on this journey. We've been talking about it now for several weeks. He's saying goodbye to the collection of believers that are in all these different cities. He does this uh, entire circuitous route of a final missionary journey. This is third Paul's third missionary journey. And he goes all the way around and he says, now that I've visited with everybody, I've got my eyes fixed on Jerusalem. I want to be amongst my people, especially at the time of the festivals. I want to be able to celebrate and worship with them at that time. And so Paul is motivated, he's driven, he's he's locked in on Jerusalem. But along the way, he's getting a lot of people who don't want him to leave. They finally have Paul in their midst, they haven't seen him for a while, they appreciate his ministry, they see that the Spirit of God is moving through him, and so there's a lot of weeping, there's a lot of gathering, there's a lot of just kind of, you know, it's a tough thing to do. And so in our text it says kind of weakly here, I'll admit to you in the English Standard Version. It says that when we had parted from them, that's Miletus. We were in Miletus last week in our text. It says when we had parted from them, we went on to do other things. The original language and some of your translations also might capture this, where it says after we had torn ourselves away from them, There's a a wrenching about the departure and there's such a, a camaraderie that's being built and a fellowship that's being built among them that for him to leave is no easy task. For them to let him go is no easy task. And this is really important for us to understand because when we're talking about their counsel and their advice as to what he should do next, we have to remember it is completely motivated by their absolute love for him. And so what I hope that we are able to do in our text this morning is to look at the knowing and the doing of God's will in the realistic context of our lives, that these some of these um, obediences are not the easiest thing, not the most attractive things to do. It's interesting to me that already this morning, though unplanned and unintentionally uh, connected to our text, we've talked about doing some of the things that make us uncomfortable, And how does that relate to the will of God? How are we supposed to discern what he's telling us in that? Because in the realistic context of our lives, we have disagreements with one another. I think I should do this. No, I think you should do this. Or we have uncertainty. I I think this is what he's saying to do, but I'm not absolutely sure. So I just want to see it revealed in some kind of crazy, unarguable way. Or we get that urging from others, maybe out of their love for us. They don't want to see us go down to something that looks risky or scary. We have our own fears. We have our own frustrations with not being clear on this. So all of these things are in the mix of a very realistic pursuit of God's will for our lives. If you're not used to using that phrase, God's will, think of it as God's purpose, his plan. And we say this all the time. He has a perfect plan for you. I'm going to qualify that a little bit. God's plans are always perfect, but not from the standpoint that if we don't do exactly the thing that maybe we thought we should do in that moment, he can't change it or improve it or make it count for him. So let's take the word perfect out of the equation, not because God isn't, but because our interpretation, our receiving of it is is never perfect. So when it comes to God's call for each of his children, what we should all have is a strong desire to know his leading. I'm not going to argue that we shouldn't desire that. I'm going to argue for that. And yet a strong determination to see it through. What do we do once we have the realization of what we should do? Are we willing to see it through? So first and foremost, let's just talk about living with a strong desire to know God's will. If we go back in our text, in uh, last week's text in Acts chapter 20, we're going to see a very resolute Paul and see who he credits for his resolution. He says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul is not... Um, second guessing this, he's not flaky on God's direction. He is resolute. He is determined to do the thing that he believes the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. And we also have to keep in mind that Luke is writing this down in credit to him. He didn't caveat it and say, you know, he was a little misguided. Wait till you hear what we all had to say about it or anything. He says, no, he just records it as fact. Paul knew that this was uh, the direction that the spirit had given to him. And he says, I don't know what's exactly going to happen to me, but the Spirit tells me that in every one of these locations, it is not going to be fun. I am going to be facing testing, imprisonment, afflictions, all of those things. And yet he is absolutely certain that that's the direction he needs to go. So we ask ourselves the question, when it comes to the things of our life and the direction or the headings that we think we are to take, the steps that are before us, could we say as securely as Paul, this has been given to me by the Spirit of God? Even with all of its potential bumps down the road and everything, I know for a fact that this is the way I'm supposed to go. I've had a lot of people tell me that to justify a particular thing that they wanted to do. No matter how much I showed them in Scripture, this is not allowed to you or available to you. This isn't what God blesses. They said, but I have a what? a piece about it i am absolutely certain that the spirit has given me this direction to go down so we have to wrestle with this how do we discover the will of god for ourselves i'm going to encourage us to be quick to do so to to go in energetically into the discovery of the will of god And since it's imperative that we know it, how do we discover it? I told you that we would ask that question, am I supposed to marry this person? Do I move to this location? Do I take this job or don't I? How many kids do we have? I should have asked the Lord that question. (laughs) Sometimes just go with the spirit. You know what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? How does the spirit reveal the will of God to us? I want us to look at it from a perspective of both general and specific revelation. When we're talking doctrinally, how God has revealed himself, he does it in both general and special ways. A general revelation is something that everybody should be able to recognize in nature. Uh, Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So there is a a general awareness that God has made known to all of creation. And if you don't see him in it, that's your fault, not his, because he's made that plain. The scriptures say he's all over the place, stamping his handiwork on everything so that generally speaking, we know somebody made this. But specifically, until we knew who the person of Christ was, or we had God speak to us supernaturally as a people to say, this is my plan of salvation, we wouldn't have known. We would have just looked at the skies and been like, and what did we do? Uh, tribes and, and people all over the world started like um, er- er- erecting gods and making sacrifices because they didn't know specifically who was behind this. That came as a result of special revelation. I think the same is true for God's will for his people. Generally, what he has given for all of us as his children to obey is made plain in the scriptures. He's pasted it all over the place. This is who we are to be. This is what we're supposed to be about. This is how we um, uh, uh, govern our affections and all the things. Even Pastor Jeremy was talking about earlier in terms of who is my neighbor. God has said things very generally to all of his children. He says, love God. Love others. He said things to us like go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. He's told husbands to love their wives as Jesus did. He's told wives to respect their husbands as the church has. He's told children to honor their mothers and fathers. He's told workers to be diligent with their hands and and work hard as a good testimony before the Lord. He's told us to give of our first fruits and sacrificial obedience to him. He's told us collectively all of these things. These are the principles of God's word. And then he is told some of us or most of us or all of us specific things along the way. Take this person as a spouse or take this job. It's an opportunity or say this sort of thing to this person that you've had a grudge against. And, you know, the spirit is just nudging you saying, get over it already and say that thing. And we've all felt what I would call those promptings of the spirit. We have the principles of the spirit, which are spelled out all through the word of God. And then we have those promptings that are nudges uh, for us in a particular direction. If I'm in a boat, you know, that has a rudder and I'm stuck in the mud on shore and I'm saying, I wish God would give me some direction here. God's saying, you're not moving anywhere. I can't give you direction when you're just stuck along the shoreline. But that boat that's moving down the river, it just needs a little bit of rudder shift, right? And all of a sudden that boat starts finding. And it's not crazy turning and undulations and all these things. It's gentle movement and guidance. God often gives these promptings, the little whispers here and there, to vessels that are already in motion, knowing they need to be heading down the river. God often gives promptings to those who are faithful to the larger principles, the things that he's pasted everywhere for us to obey, the things that we should be fixated on and the things that we should be obsessed with. Those, in my experience, uh, not just for me personally, like I'm great at this or anything, but in my experience of interacting with God's people for so long. Those that are already moving down the river are sensing the Lord's promptings and getting His direction in the smaller ways that allow them to navigate through the turbulent waters and still make it to their destination. But so often the people that are complaining that God's not showing them a direction are stuck in the shoreline. You know, uh, their rudder is jammed in the mud. And they're not going anywhere yet. And they're asking the Lord, just show me direction. Give me an answer. It's, it's an emphasis on the wrong kind of revelation, the wrong kind of spiritual revelation. So that's how the Spirit reveals things to us, but He's also inclined to do things a certain way. We know this not just from our experience, but we know it from Scripture, that what we see as an open door versus a closed door, this is a language we use a lot when we're talking about God's will, is is often different in my interpretation of what an open door is compared to what the Lord's is. I want to just use a really um, familiar example from the life of Paul. We bring this one up often in our application of Scripture. It has so many principles for us to grab. But Paul is asking the Lord for a relief to a physical ailment. You'll know that he's called it his thorn in the flesh. It's this thing that is, 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 uh, holding him back, slowing him down. He feels like I could be so much more effective if I didn't have this thing. He might have been like moving into bargaining territory with God a little bit if you remove this and all this sort of stuff. So he brings it before the Lord and he wants direction. God, are you going to remove this thing? And God's response in 2 Corinthians 12 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. His answer to Paul was, you think that this is a closed door because it hurts. You think that it's robbing you of opportunity because it's not easy to deal with. But he said, actually, I'm putting you in a place where it's going to sing greater for my glory because of what you're going to endure. You're going to be speaking to my sufficient grace that's been made available to you. Others were concerned when Paul would get arrested and he's in shackles and they would be like, oh, this is terrible. It's like he shouldn't have done this. It's a closed door. This isn't a good opportunity. And he says, actually, these chains are are my freedom. I'm put in places to speak of the goodness of God that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to had I not been arrested and imprisoned. I guess, in other words, we could say the spirit also leads us into difficult places. Not just these obvious open doors or God was smiling down at me because I got the good parking spot today. Or I got the good health report or any of those things. We're thankful for those things. We don't become masochists and go out and say, Lord, give me a bunch of uh, of, of stormy weather and terrible circumstances so I can prove my love for you. That's that's a different problem altogether. But The reality is, as I say, Lord, I'm tempted and prone to identify that as a closed door because it hurts. What if it's what you want me to walk through? I I find it ironic that Paul is visiting Tyre, T Y R E, and they hang on to him for like a week. They don't want him to go anywhere. And they hear where he's going and they say, listen, the Spirit is urging us to tell you not to go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Nothing but trouble awaits you there. And the part that I find ironic is Tyre, the assembly of believers there, it's widely speculated that their church started because of Paul's persecution before he was a Christian. Paul stirred up the whole area there where they were were running for their lives and spreading out. So they were fleeing this persecution and the gospel started spreading like fire everywhere. And so they are the beneficiaries, Weirdly, to, weird way to put it, they're the beneficiaries of God stirring things up and causing things to be uncomfortable and scary and life-threatening for them. And yet they're telling Paul, don't go do it. It's scary and life-threatening for you. And I find it sweet and ironic that they want to hang on to him rather than holding a lifelong grudge. If it wasn't for you, Paul, we wouldn't have had to settle in this area. We could be home with our... No, they love him. They see God's hand at work. A lot of you have been praying for the Moors and uh, Woody, who is you know still hospitalized and still got a long way to go. And I wonder how our prayers would be shaped towards them if it was more than just—it's not that we don't pray for his speedy recovery but how our prayers could be shaped of the audience that they have and the network that they've built in their lives of being faithful and friends and so effective in sports communities and everything. Like, Lord, you could do something amazing in this. I don't know how long he'd still be in this condition. I don't know what they'll have to go through. I don't know what they'll have to see. But, Lord, we just want your glory to be the biggest thing that comes out of this whole trial. What could it look like? What would happen God, if you just showed off, if you did like we've been praying in Ephesians 3.20, if you do more than we could ask or think, what would it be? Because I'll tell you, my immediate prayers are always for a quick recovery, for all of those things to be well and fine, and that's what we want for them. But God has so much more that he's capable of and that he intends to do when he leads us in difficult places. So there's a wiring that needs to happen inside of us too that we start to see what often looks and feels like a closed door is maybe God's in this. Not because we'd be violating some principle that he's given us, not because we'd be sinning, but because the opportunity looks a little scary, looks like something maybe I'm not equipped for, but I sense the Lord's telling me to step through this and I need to look at it the opposite. I heard somebody say this week, if God, if you've been reading through your, your old Testament, you have been trying to get through like the Bible in a year and you've started off and everything, you've read the story of Joseph. It's one of my absolute favorite stories in all of scripture and the way that they boil it down. I'm sorry if you don't know all the details, I don't have time to give you the overview, but somebody says, if God wants to send you to Egypt, he'll provide for you seven jealous brothers to sell you into slavery. Isn't that the reality? I would think that seems like a closed door to begin with. So while we're quick to discover the will of God, I want to caution us to be slow to counsel it to others. Not entirely negligent. I'm not saying don't counsel God's will to other people. Be slow about it. Because of all the things that factor into our first reaction. This is what Paul was experiencing. So now we jump into our text in, verse 20, in chapter 21. Looking in verse 4. It says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It's a really interesting phrase because it would seem as though they are being led by the same Spirit that told Paul to go to Jerusalem. And the other interesting thing is that Luke is not really putting these, uh, pitting these against each other, although it sounds like that in our in our English language. But he's not saying, therefore, Paul was wrong. He's before this and even after this going to say that Paul was justified in interpreting the voice of the spirit correctly. Yet others through the spirit were saying, don't go. It's dangerous. Let's jump down to verse nine. He who is Philip, the evangelist, we're talking the original deacon, buddy of Stephen, this guy's experienced. he's weathered, he's successful. The Lord has blessed his ministry. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We don't get a lot of information about that. Other sources in history say that their prophecy had a tendency, had a, had an effect on like writing history of what happened in the early church. That they were spending a lot of their time prophesying through the Spirit of God about the things, the events that had happened so that the, the records were accurate. So these four, um, young women were, were blessed by the Spirit of God to be able to say things the right way about the God um, that they worshipped. And, and so they're factoring into this. It doesn't say what they're saying, but Luke wants to record it. They prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. This is what they did in the Old Testament, too. The prophets would come and do a demonstration to make a dramatic impact. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt, own, owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we, Luke's admitting, look, when we heard this, Luke was there, we and the people urged him not to go up to, up to Jerusalem. This is where it gets real for me. Paul is absolutely convinced that the spirit has told him what he's supposed to do. We know Paul's a headstrong guy anyway, very accomplished. Is he misreading this? Is it ego speaking instead of the spirit of the Lord? The spirit is compelling others to say, don't go. How do we make sense of this? I don't know. Moving on. Um, Just kidding. That's what it feels like. I got to be honest with you. It feels like that. But I think we have to understand that there is a difference between a prediction and a prohibition. We have to see what isn't being said in this. That one phrase I admit is a little tricky through the Spirit. That was back in verse four. But that really could be explained as after they had seen the report that the Spirit gave that these things were going to happen, they said, don't go and do it. I'm not sure if that's a stretch but it troubles me a little bit through the spirit. They were telling Paul not to go onto Jerusalem, but there's a difference between a prediction like what Agabus was saying. He said, let me, let me see your belt here for a second. And he wraps up Paul's hands Says, just so you know, this is what's awaiting you. But he didn't say it like, don't go do it. In other words, God wasn't prohibiting from going him going. He was preparing him through this prophecy to gird up, to be ready for it, to embrace it, and for the people in the audience, I would think, to understand this stuff's serious. And they seem to have gotten that message because then they started reacting like, don't you hear what he's saying? Don't you see what he's demonstrating? You can't do this. You can't go. And, and, And isn't it better for us and for the Lord's cause and all these things, Paul, if you live longer? This urging is something that I can't imagine the pressure that Paul was feeling. You're talking about some pretty stellar individuals. These aren't wishy-washy. Their rudders aren't stuck in the mud. These are people whose canoes are going down river already. And they're saying, the Spirit's telling me shouldn't be doing this. It's tricky for us to know these things. You know, I'm a... I'm an expert, actually, on this subject. I, I know exactly what the Lord's will is for you. <laughs> I am 100% confident you come and you just say, okay, I think I got this and I got this. And I, no, don't start doing that. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not always that clear. But it's so much easier for me to judge what God wants to happen in your life than it is mine. Because I have skin in the game with you in the sense that I, I want things to go well for you. I can tell you what to avoid because I don't want to see you get scarred up and banged up. So I'm going to tell you that that doesn't sound like God's will. That sounds really, I'm not sure that I would have the guts as well to counsel Paul. Sounds like a good move. Head on deep into the city. Let's see what they do to you. You know, I don't, I want to say that I trust the spirit of God like Paul is trusting the spirit of God, but it would be hard for me to enter into that knowing how much I love him and don't want any harm to come to him. I have, a, I, have a, a justific, I have a justifying flesh. And when I say flesh, I, what i biblically speaking is the natural me apart from the Spirit of God. In my flesh, I confuse difficulty and ease with God's will. I see difficulty as a warning not to do something. That must be telling me this isn't good for me to do because it's going to sting or hurt which gives me a limitation in my flesh because my perspective is only on the short term. What I want, uh, you know, the thing that I want to be best in my life right now. The problem is because of my limitation of my flesh, I don't know what best is. I think I know what best is, but I'm so short sighted. I have no real perspective of how God could use this, what God could be doing that's even better in your life. And there have been times in counseling situations where somebody is about to do the thing that most people in the world would say, do not do this. You're only going to get kicked in the teeth. This is terrible and everything. And that person says, I just think the spirit of God wants me to do this, to submit and surrender all the other protections and safeties and comforts and cushions and everything to do something that he wants me to do. And and I'm telling you I have to kind of force it out of my throat and say, "Well, then that's what you need to do." Cuz inside I'm like, "Don't you know what this is going to cost? Don't you know how hard this is going to be to survive this?" It's not every time. It's not that you we always do the thing that hurts. But sometimes the Lord just made it that clear in order to honor him, in order to be faithful to him, we go through a door that most people would say is closed, locked, and we have no business going through. God's will for each person, though, I can say this confidently, it seldom looks like the safest option. I, I would love to ask for a show of hands. I won't. But how many of you have done the thing that you knew God was calling you to do? And it was the easier than what you were doing before. It might be something you discover to be easier later, but did it sound like easier in its pitch to you? Most of the time that God leads us, it's like we get further out that branch that's hanging. You know, we're hanging from that branch on the tree. The further we out, what happens? It starts creaking. All right, all right. And it starts going like this. And the Lord's like, trust me, a little bit more, a little bit more. Lord, this branch is going to snap. I'm going to fall and break my neck. Trust me, keep going. It's typically the way he leads us. I can point to any one of the principles Jeremy was laying it outlining it in the announcements and things like the things that God calls us to are the things like, I don't know if I could do that. It's ugly or it's uncomfortable. I'm not sure where the where the where the what's good for or what's good in it for me thing starts playing out. Paul's motivation to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit was bigger than his personal safety. We talked about this the last several weeks. Paul had a tangible goal to get to Jerusalem with a bunch of money that he has collected from the churches. He wants to get to the suffering and poor Jews in Jerusalem. Those Christians who have received all kinds of persecution for the stance they took for Jesus of Nazareth, and now they've been maligned, they've been mistreated, they've been ransacked, they've been all through all of these things. And he says, I'm going to go around and with good stewardship and judiciously collect a, an offering for the people of Jerusalem and order to bring it to them. And many of us could say, look, Paul, you got an entourage. You don't need to be the one to go. These guys are faithful. There's heavy security. They'll get the money there. But see, Paul's motivation wasn't, well, I need to get the credit for it, or I want to go because I need to see this. It wasn't a self-serving kind of thing. He had a much bigger agenda in mind than even just dropping off bags of cash. He wanted to have the Gentiles demonstrate and deliver a sincere thank you to the Jews for having obeyed the Holy Spirit to reach out of their cultural distinctives and say, we are going to uh, give the gospel to the Gentiles, to the unbelievers. So he wants that message to come like you've reached out and given us new life through Christ. We're going to reach back and give you provisions for the things that you need. And he wants to start seeing a strengthening of a bond between Jew and Gentile. He says this a lot in his writings, that there's now no more distinction. There's no more difference between Jew or Greek. So that there's an incredible testimony to the world that this gospel thing in Jesus breaks down all these other barriers that the world can't fix. So he wants God's glory to be all over that kind of thing. And then he wants to expand the kingdom. The more people that hear about the grace of Jesus Christ, the more will receive him. And God's kingdom just continues to grow and grow and grow. But he also has been fighting with these nasty Judaizers at every stop. These are the people who... un. Uh, inexplicably just follow Paul around and say, it's great that he's preaching Jesus. We are for that. But he's also starting to remove and ruin the history of the Jews by remove the um, the obligation to the customs to the fulfillment of the things that they're supposed to do. And so Paul, everywhere he went, instead of just being able to pour into hungry believers, he was always having to fight these guys off with a stick because they wanted them to go back to circumcision and all these other things. He spent an entire letter of Galatians talking about calling them mutilators of the flesh, believing that the rituals of religion could save you when it was only the Spirit of God that can. So Paul is saying, if we come and we do this thing, it's come full circle. It's brought all the churches together and it creates a a fortification, if you will, against these Judaizers who think they can penetrate the church with all their silly rules and customs. And Paul is saying, I can't risk this mission to just anybody. God has uniquely called me and gifted me. Jesus said, we're going to show you that Paul has been set aside to suffer greatly more than anybody else. This is all part of God's plan. The spirit is pressed on Paul um, uh, uh, inarguably. And so Paul is saying, I have to be the one. So then our counsel is that we need to live with an equally strong determination to be about God's will. This is what he says in verses 13 and 14. What are you doing? You're weeping and you're breaking my heart. From ready, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And Luke says, since he wouldn't be persuaded, we, collective wisdom, our boats are moving down the river. We get promptings from the Holy Spirit too. We ceased and said, okay, we'll let the will of the Lord be done. There was a surrender to the fact that maybe we don't see all the moving pieces. Maybe we should just trust the fact that Paul's heading is one of uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit. And remember that Luke is intentionally giving us a parallel between the the mission of Jesus going into Jerusalem to lay his life down for our sins, and the determination of Paul to return to Jerusalem to follow in his Savior's footsteps. Paul isn't going to die for your sins and mine. He's not even going to die for his sins. This isn't some some um, uh, guilt that he feels for having been a persecutor of the church. And oh, this is just my destiny. I got to go pay. He just wants to be obedient to being exactly like Jesus. And since the Holy Spirit is pressed on him, this is how we're going to go about doing that. He says, "I'm all in. All I've ever wanted to be is an imitation or a copy of my Savior." So he's being faithful to go. Paul is demonstrating to us that we need to be quick to obey despite our own inclinations, despite our own uh, frustrations with our current circumstances, despite all of the tugs that our flesh feels in moments like this. Think about all the pressure he's getting for them. Paul, just stay another day. We've got more hot cocoa coming. Don't be in a rush for this. Jerusalem will always be there. Paul knows the longer I linger, he's admitting it in this phrase He goes, you're killing me here. You're tearing my heart out of my chest. If I stay with you any longer, your counsel is going to sound like wisdom to me. And I'm going to start changing the interpretation of what the spirit's been telling me to do. I hear that all in his admission that he's being torn away from them in this. I've long lived by the phrase, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? I love that phrase. I try not to live by it, but it is awfully tempting. I've got this naggy little song, uh, Sunday school song that goes through my head, though. Every time I think along those lines, those blasted little Sunday school songs, catchy little tunes and perfect little uh, principles in them and stuff. You want to hear it, don't you? Sorry, wife. This, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but I will obey the first time I'm told. Anybody here? I will obey right away. Never asking why, never with a sigh. I will obey right away. And then there's somewhere in there, to delay is to disobey. (laughs) Easy audience. To delay is to disobey. I'm going to get around to it. This is what I say often. I'll be in better position to do it if I wait till. I'll be more ready for if I just do this first. And I know the Lord saying, this is what you need to get in order now. I have all these kinds of justifications. Again, my flesh is limited because I don't have any in and of myself without the Spirit of God. I have no ability to see from a better perspective than just my own self-satisfaction. It's what I am controlled by unless the Spirit has more of me. What feels good for me? What's in it for me? So if I'm not quick to obey the voice of the Spirit, all those uh, things come raging back in and fighting and start to sound like logical sense. Hey, I'm being pressed in the Spirit that maybe this isn't the time for you to go into Jerusalem. Sounds dangerous. Sounds like a closed door to me. It all starts having an air of wisdom about it. So not only do I need to be quick to obey the leading of the spirit despite myself, I have to be slow to trust myself. Paul had every human reason to doubt his direction. Like I said, all these people that were speaking theoretically from the spirit were really sharp people, gifted of the Lord, not wicked people trying to divert him. He's had his own success. He could start rehearsing his own resume and say, yeah, I've kind of accomplished a lot. And If I do go and get like that, then all that goes away. Start talking to ourselves about all this kind of logic. But Paul was being led by the spirit of God. How does he prepare Paul to be able to endure? How does he prepare Paul to be able to obey despite all of his inclinations just to stay for that one more cup of cocoa? How much more reliable are the Spirit's resources compared to ours. My resources come from a place of limited knowledge. I have only know what I've lived so far. I may have gained some experience from the people around me, but even that's limited. It doesn't see all things. My success has been limited. I have a built-in aversion to pain. Anything that stings, I stay away from, that kind of thing. That's who we are as people. But Him, as the Lord shows up, He comes at this with all knowledge, he knows exactly what's best for us. He knows exactly what has happened, what is going to happen, and how we'll survive. He knows uh, he brings all power and all my limitations and my weakness. He supply, uh, supplies me with the power that I need to do it. My aversion to pain is erased because he's carried that pain for me. I just need to trust. I need to just say, okay, Lord, you're leading in this. It needs to be you leading, not me. How are you and I going to know that the will of God is, is present to us, that we can hear it, that we can recognize it? Let me give you four ways in which I believe the Lord speaks to us. And these are not printed in your notes that are on the back side of your, um, announcement page. So if you have a pen and you want to write these down, uh, it'd be helpful. These are borrowed, but I love the fact that they all start with W. Uh, the first way that the Lord uses, uh, the Lord, um, shares with us his will is through the word of God. Big shocker, right? We study together as God's people the the Bible that has been inspired by God, that it doesn't have any error in the way it was written so that we know that we contain the truth of God, that it says everything that God intended for it to say, that it's infallible in the sense that it can be trusted, it isn't going to fail us ever. And it is sufficient to speak into our lives. It doesn't tell us, as I've said before, it doesn't tell you how to change a carburetor in a car. It tells you how to go about how you spend the money to do it, who you seek for help, how you don't lose your cool while you're trying to pull it off, all these kinds of things. It's sufficient for the areas of our life, even if it doesn't technically cover every detail. It either speaks directly to us through a passage or it speaks indirectly to us through a principle that it contains. And sometimes we like to use the Bible as like, I need an answer now. And so we do the whole, "Mm -mm." it reminds me of a story. Got another story for you. A preacher out in a country road, his car breaks down. And so he's got to walk into town, this is before cell phones and things, he's got to walk into town and borrow the first phone he can find to get a wrecker out there to fix his car. And so he, against his better judgment, stumbles into a bar to be able to borrow their phone and he sees a man there he hasn't seen for years and he looks and he says, Sam, is that you? He says, what happened to you? You're sitting here on a Tuesday afternoon in a bar, wasting away, used to be rich, used to be successful, used to be on top of your game, what happened? Oh, man, Sam says, I've just had a whole series of events and tragedies and different things. And the preacher was listening to and the preacher says, listen, I'm going to give you some advice. What I want you to do is I want you to go home. I want you to open your Bible. I want you to put your finger down on the Bible. And the first thing it says, that's going to be your answer on how you get your life back. I know. Great advice. What could go wrong, right? Don't do this, by the way few weeks later he's going through town and he sees sam sam's on top of his game again nice suit beautiful car the rings and watches and all this kind of stuff and he says sam what happened just when i saw you before you're all disheveled and everything he says i took your advice preacher went home put my finger in the bible it told me exactly what to do what would you see i put my finger there it said chapter 11 Those of you that have weathered the ugly world of finances, you know sometimes that looks like the best option. All right. If you don't get that joke, I'm sorry. Chapter 11 is when you declare bankruptcy. Anyway, that is not how to use the Word of God. The Word of God speaks to us through principles and shapes the entire focus of our lives so that our, our boat is moving down the river. And we're in the will of God because our obsession is with what's here, not the spooky stuff that I haven't heard yet. But I'm trusting, Lord, I want to hear you through your word. He also speaks to us through the wisdom of others. The Bible is big on godly counsel that we make ourselves available to the voice of other trusted godly people whose boats are also moving down the river whose rudders seem to be adjusting, not in major crazy turns, but just there's a steadiness to it, but an availability to the Lord's plan. Those people um, are to be around us. And I remember I told you, don't be slow to counsel the will of God. I didn't say be negligent because the voice of others is to confirm what the Lord is telling us, not to give us new direction. This drives me nuts when people come and tell me, the Lord told me you're supposed to whatever. And I go, oh, what am I supposed to do with that? And then it sounds like something that comes out of a fortune cookie. It's really vague, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so, um, but there are times where the Lord has spoken more specifically through somebody else where I'm like, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I, I wish I could tell you which ones you trust and which ones you don't, but it certainly helps when your boat's already moving down the river and you're hearing counsel from the word of God on the regular, because then you start to recognize the other weird stuff. You start to recognize the the other unhelpful stuff and you just chuck it. And You say, I just don't have. All right. Tell you another story. Had a guy come one time we were doing getting ready for an Easter Sunday morning service. And there's a lot that happens here on Easter Sunday morning. And we have a tendency call us a little woo woo or spooky or whatever. But we have a tendency to look for the forces of evil stirred up in a couple of different times in our calendar. Usually around the Halloween season, usually around Easter. Seems like the church just goes through all kinds of things, dramas, hindrances, all that kind of stuff. It just feels as though the spiritual forces of darkness move in certain ways. It's not every year, but it's just one of those things that we started paying attention to. So when we're at each other's throats or we're feeling stressed, we're like, "Ah, we got to pray about this. And I remember uh, being kind of on high alert one Easter Sunday morning. And a guy came in, uh, of course, I'd never seen before, had a real slick accent. And he was all, you know, dressed to the hilt and everything. And he comes down and we're still like trying to fill the baptistry. We're running around like chickens with our head cut off. We know that hundreds and hundreds of people are going to show up. And he says, brother, the Lord has sent me here all the way from Florida to tell you something. I said, I'm not interested in hearing it. I'm not trying to sound tough. I, that's just what came out of me. I even looked back and said, why would you be so dismissive of this poor guy? Uh, and so, again, I'm, I'm saying this carefully and cautiously. I'm not trying to say this is how you handle all these kinds of things. I've, it's really bothered me ever since. But, but he said, the, the Lord has come to tell, me, tell you something. I said, I'm really not interested in hearing it. We've got a lot of things that the Lord's already called us to do this morning that we have to get ready for. He looks at me. And then, sure enough, he goes on to proceed to say, I've got four books. That I've been, you know, selling and all that, like he just came, exactly what it seemed like I was gonna hear from him was he's going from church to church to church and making it sound like I've got a specific prophetic word for you, but it was this cookie cutter, fortune cookie kind of sounding, just general, whatever, and I just said, Lord, thank you for shutting that down earlier. Now, I've been convicted by that sometimes that I get a little cut off sometimes if I'm blinded and stuff, so I've said to the Lord, if that ever, if you're, if you're the one walking down the hall next time, don't ever let me cut you off. That's what I say to the Lord. But there are times where you just have to kind of go, look, there's no wisdom coming out of this opportunity. I don't know if that helps. Probably the reason why it wasn't in my notes. Another way that the Lord speaks to us is through a witness of peace. Now, again, like I said earlier, we've got a lot of people justifying bad behavior. So the Lord gave me a peace about it. I'm not really talking about that, just kind of searing your conscience, but it's it's tr- it's protecting the fact that the Lord has made us uh, sensitive to his voice on the inside so that we'll do anything we can to protect that so that we don't ruin our conscience by trampling over the leading of the word of God or leading over the counsel of others in our lives. I don't care. I want to do this anyway. Well, I'm sorry, brother or sister, but I, the Lord's not in this. He said it in his word. Generally speaking, it's right here and you're violating. Yeah, but I just want to do this. And so I'm going to tell you I have a piece about it. And then we rob ourselves of what God has really given us with a tender conscience. We start to build a callous around that conscience. And it's harder to hear him when we're uh, walking in rebellion. In fact, the scriptures would say that you don't hear him when you're walking in rebellion. And lastly... I think that the Lord does on occasion use a whisper, what I would call a prompting, a whisper of God specific to our situation, personal in how we have to hear certain things. And I don't care what kind of theological camp you come from. Everyone has their allowances for the spirit just being encouraging to them or nudging them in a certain direction. Because we understand that God still reserves the right to be able to speak and to guide us individually. Because he knows us personally. He cares about our individual needs. He still orchestrates the movement of the world, even down to the smallest detail. So he wants us to be available to how he's moving. But can I submit to you that the order I just read these things is the order in which we need to keep them in terms of priority in our lives? We start with, it's all coming from the word of God. Uh, and, and I will tell you, if God hasn't said it in his word, or let me put it a different way. If the whisper you're getting is in violation to the what he has said in his word, that is not the spirit of God. So the word of God is our authority. That is the written revelation from God. He didn't forget some stuff. He didn't leave things out because he was thinking, um, you know, oh, I never got around to that. Or I wasn't sure how to explain myself that way. He put in there what we would need for life and godliness. In in my experience, those that are fixated on this word and wanting to obey it in its principles and in its specifics don't need to go seeking the esoteric voice of the Lord all the time. Tell me this and tell me that they're already busy moving in a direction. So the rudder just moves a little bit like this. The priority of this comes from we put our, uh, our reliability in the word of God. We have strong counsel from other trusted people. I've benefited from this over and over in my life that if the Lord is telling more people something that I'm not hearing, then it's probably me that needs to start paying attention. And then we then put reliability on our witness of peace at our inner conscience. But don't we see so many times that everyone wants to flip that over? God told me this. Or I feel this and now it's the overriding authority in our lives. We have to get back to saying, where is it written? And what does God say about this in his word? And how do I adopt that? How do I absorb that into my heart, making it the highest calling in my life? This is how the spirit fortifies us as we wrap up. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you. Our spirit and life. A little bit later, he says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. God has promised us that his presence, his spirit would live within us. And it has. So yes, it is good and necessary for us to seek God's will, but it needs to have a focus towards obedience. God, show me what your will is. And he says, open this book and you'll see it every day of your life. And then I say, Lord, how do you make me obedient to it? How do you make me uh, ready to endure, even if it's calling me into uh, difficult territory? And as hard as you ask the Lord to reveal it to you, ask him for the strength of determination to do it. We need to expect that most often God's will doesn't always match our flesh's wishes or desires. But expect that he can change your desires to match his will. Which he often does. And expect that whatever he leads you into is for the best by his definition and for our good. Would you please stand and let's pray. Glory God, I know that uh, probably to a person in this room and online, there are uh, we all struggle with knowing uh, exactly what step we are to take. And Lord, it doesn't seem as though you call us to panic over those smallest of details, but instead to press into obeying your principles, to live the life that you've clearly spelled out to us, trusting that you will guide our steps in the specifics along the way. But Lord, we still thank you for the times that your spirit does nudge us and does encourage us and does remind us of the things that you've written and leads us into the paths of people that help build that up into our lives and to confirm it. So I pray, Lord, that we would see this as as another aspect of living this Christian life together. That as a body of believers, we would seek your will, that we would find it in the scriptures and that we would rely on your leading in each of our lives. Lord, help us for the determination to do the difficult things, to not always shy away to the easiest paths, thinking that those are the open doors that you've laid out for us. So we trust you this morning. We thank you, God, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.